0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I used to be a U.S. history teacher, and uh, I will tell you, from teaching that class, I only grew in my respect and admiration for the United States of America. Like, I know it's uh, kind of faux pas, I guess, these days, or something like that, to say that it seems to, it's like, become hip to uh, kind of... um, uh, kind of uh, think about some of the controversies of the United States of America, I'll tell you one thing. In, in teaching about the history of our country, alongside teaching uh, the 20th century uh, of other countries and other places, you realize that no matter where you live, you kind of are just picking to live with sinners of different cultures. <laughs> and, uh, and really, it's a, it's a choice of which kind of sinner do you want to live with? And so at the same place as we're struggling all throughout the 1900s uh, with things like boycotts and, and bus seating and, and segregation and, and Cold War and Vietnam and lots of uh, tumultuous things, uh, there's other places where they're just digging holes in the ground and just burying dead bodies into them. You know what I mean? And so um, all that being said, um, you know, the country that we live in is, is, is an amazing place, uh, albeit that has imperfect people in it and leading it for sure. And so uh, uh, right before COVID hit in 2020, I went to go visit uh, Washington, D.C. It's kind of a pilgrimage that I think many of us have been on before and uh, went into the Lincoln Memorial and uh, just saw just the most amazing thing that you see on those textbooks and the covers of history books and stuff, but when you see it with your real eyes, like when you see it and feel it, it's just like a moment. Have you been there before to the Lincoln Memorial and felt it before? And there on the on the ground floor there is, is, is a little sign that says, and this is where Dr. Martin Luther King turned turned his back towards Lincoln and went out towards the Washington Monument and gave the famous I Have a Dream speech. I mean, what a what a hallowed, sacred place, you know, where everything. Out here in real estate is up for grabs and you knock down a building and everything's built since 1980s, there's, there's, a, there's something to having legacy, a monument, something that's in moving and, and staying there. And there's literally grown men that are in the Washington or Lincoln Memorial or Lincoln, Lincoln Monument there, like weeping over the speech, the speech that's behind it. This, the speech is the second inaugural address right between you know the middle of the, of the Civil War, trying to hold the nation together in what I'm sure was a very tumultuous device of time. And I'll just read a couple of the, the words there. Um, I feel like the speeches uh, that our politicians give today are a different brand of speeches, I feel like. I feel like there's a little bit more eloquence in, in these words here. but there's this last paragraph as he kind of, in the middle of the Civil War, gives the beginning of the second inaugural address with, address with malice toward none, says Lincoln, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Uh, Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow. And for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Man, I mean, I don't know what part of you're from and how you think about American history and what is good and the highs and lows. But those are powerful words. And again, uh, you know, we can kind of choose where we decide to place our zip code and our residence. But everywhere we live is going to have sinners, um, the people that we live with and the people that lead us. And so I made this remark to Kyra as we, you know, stepped off of the steps of that experiencing it you know, for the first time, um, having read about it so many times in, in history book and talking about it with 16-year-olds, uh, is that you know, the story of America is not so much really about the system as it is about the people. You know, there's a lot of countries uh, that exist today that have you know, constitutional democracies, they have bicameral legislatures, there's places that vote on things all over the world that don't act and walk and talk like America. Like, it's not the system that makes America America. Uh, the system, for, for sure, is, is instrumental in the ingredients of, of what makes our country what it is. But really, it's, it's the Rosa Parks that make, makes America, America. It's Abraham Lincoln that makes America, America. It's the pioneers. It's the, it's the, uh, the, the gold rush of 1949, you know? It's, it's Michael Jordan. Like, that's what makes America, America. And so, Tim Keller, he has, he has a great quote about kingdom. I love it. He says, you know, the thing is about democracy is we put up democracy because democracy is our medicine. Democracy keeps us safe. But every man, woman, and child in every place across the globe uh, will tolerate democracy but hungers for kingdom wants to live somewhere where right is right and wrong is wrong, where things are not just safe, but they're good, where we're we're not just avoiding the dangers of tyranny and peril, but also embodying things like virtue and kindness and justice and righteousness. These are the types of things that really make what a country is what it is. And so, so, I guess it was a couple years ago, you know, uh, 34 million Americans that have nothing to do, you know, with the UK, people like you and me that live here in South Carolina or California or New York, 34 million of them, about one-third of the Uh, population that watched the Super Bowl, tuned in to watch the royal wedding. The royal wedding of, of, I guess, what is that? William and Kate? Is that them? I don't know much about them, and I don't know if you do, but we're so intrigued, right? Is that not William and Kate? Who are they? Harry? Harry I got the other ones wrong. So both of them, (laughs) Harry and Meg, William and Kate. I didn't watch it, okay? (laughs) That's the point. So the 34 million people, says something, That in the middle of the day, we're going to turn on our television sets to watch a wedding. You didn't even go to your cousin's wedding this summer. You skipped it, and here you're watching Harry and Meghan's wedding. What is it about when kings were kings and queens were queens? What is it about when loyalty was loyalty and justice was justice? When was things not just safe but good? Like, we know that all kingdom brings tyranny, and everybody, ultimate authority, ultimately brings ultimate corruption and those types of things. But ultimately, deep down inside, we still wish there was such a thing as a good king and a good queen, and maybe that's the reason reason why we watch it, even our our stories and mythologies, the Black Panther, the Lion King, the Lord of the Rings, um, Camelot, all of these memory traces deep inside of our heart and our soul talk about this bad kingdom where a bad king ruled poorly one day and brought all selfishness to himself. It could be named Scar, it could be named Darth Vader, whatever. And then there's this bad season, but off in the distance, off in the horizon, I wonder if there's a king that will come to save us. I wonder if there's a king that could bring a golden era as much as we, we fear monarchy, we hunger and, and, and desire and long for kingdom. And so what Tim Keller says is that when we don't find kingdom in, in our oval offices, we look for it in our celebrities or other places. And it's a great question, isn't it? Like, why are we so up in arms that Tiger Woods falls as a celebrity? We didn't hire him to rule us. We hired him to play golf. But yet we get strung up on that. Like, why do I care, you know? Like, did I expect more from Will Smith? based on what he's going to do on the Oscars, than than he actually did. Like, why is it that I'm so up in arms by some guy who I hired to play a policeman on TV, does something in his living room that has nothing to do with me, other than the fact that I might want him to be my king? And so in the middle of all that clamor at that award show, a guy gets up in front of 12 million viewers less than the wedding, smacks another comedian in the face, and we can't stop talking about it for three straight weeks. I mean, it's memes galore all over you know, the internet. And everybody has profound, I mean emotional feelings about this. Like we want the kings to hold court for us and to tell us the difference from right and wrong because the scales of justice we know don't really exist in the Senate. They exist with some other form of royalty that we want. And so, so Denzel stands up and he says, You know, sometimes when you're the highest place in your life, the devil might come and get you. And it was almost like the whole country had a church service. Amen. Denzel Washington. But Denzel Washington's a good-looking guy, and he's been faithful to his spouse, and, he's, and, and, and he carries a sense of charm and a dignity, and I wonder if somewhere deep in our heart we thought maybe Denzel Washington would be king in this moment, to be wise, to teach us the difference between right and wrong. You know, the Republican Party has these, these deep core values, and we've realized that the face of the Republican Party has kind of got old and a little bit hard to spin on the PR side. And so, you know, there's this uh, psychologist uh, with a Kermit the Frog voice, and he kind of talks like this, and he talks really fast his name is Jordan Peterson. And he's brilliant. And he's a psychologist. And he, he can teach you the difference between right and wrong right when he thinks about things. I mean, he's not just rough and quick like this. He just kind of... Oh, and he cries, though. He's vulnerable. Sometimes the, the, just God, the idea of the existence just makes me just tremble. And we're laughing at it. And we listen to him on YouTube. And he's got all more of these views than... Could he be king for us? Could he, could he be the face of the kingdom for us? How about Elon Musk? I mean, he's a quirky, weird guy, but hey, man, like desperate times, call for desperate measures. Steve Jobs has passed away. Who will take the, the, the heir? Who will take the, the scepter you know, of, the, of the futurist mind that can lead us out of the treachery of the past and the racism and all the skepticism and all the old stuff to lead us into a new future other than a king? Could he be the king? So in 1 Samuel uh, chapter, um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, you know, the Jews, they get, um, they get bored and they get unsettled about following God as a box, as the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was not enough. It wasn't like their neighbors. You know, you couldn't design military strategies that would promise you war. He would just tell you to, to trust in Yahweh and trust in the presence of God, and that seemed archaic and that wasn't enough. And so the people with, with one voice to the priest Samuel cried out, that place in 1 Samuel 8, the beginning of a lot of trouble for the kingdom of Israel. We don't want to follow the presence of God. We want a king. We want somebody we can see, somebody we can blame, somebody that we can call on. And, and, and so God says, much like he, he allows you know, uh, Solomon to build the temple, which was not his idea in the first place, to build a temple of human hands. He like, I don't, I don't really care. The presence of God is at home wherever it is. But you can build me a temple if you want to. That makes things easier. And I'll give you a king. But here's what I'll promise you this. Here's what every campaign slogan, America or otherwise, every campaign slogan, every November, they will always promise you three things. They're gonna promise you peace, they're gonna promise you bread, and they're gonna promise, promise you freedom, and they can deliver you none of those things. Every campaign slogan, you can make it red or blue or purple or pink, every campaign slogan is gonna bring you peace, yeah, I'm gonna bring you freedom, and I'm gonna bring you bread, and instead, what they're gonna bring you every single time, and mark my words, this is what God says, they're gonna promise you those three things, and all they're gonna give you is famine, war, and slavery. Every single one of them. Because every human king has a throne and under the reign of Adam does not have God sitting on it. Yahweh was meant to be man's king because, because he was too elusive to follow and too fearful to trust and to surrender to. We wanted a king of our own. And so this is what Yahweh says. for Samuel 8, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king and he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim is his rights. You know what? You know what kings and "'Chancellors and emperors and presidents, "'they're all going to do. "'He'll take your sons and make them serve "'with his chariots and horses, "'and they'll run in front of his chariots, "'and some he will assign to be commanders of thousands "'and commanders of fifties, "'and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. "'And so others will make weapons of war "'and equipment for his chariots. "'He will take uh, your daughters to be perfumers "'and cooks and bakers, "'and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards "'and olive groves and give them to his attendants, "'and he will take a tenth of your grain.'" And your vintage, and give it to his officials in attendance. Your male and female servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, for the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to You Samuel, no, they said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king just like they want. Translation, every king that ever sat on a throne always fell down and let, and, and let the people of God down and let the people of the world down. And so he gives them Saul, who is an ugly, uh, idol-chasing person who uh, uses the kingdom for his own benefit and uh, gets stricken by a, a spirit of panic and becomes jealous of David. He gives David, who is the greatest king of all of Israel, but even David sins with Bathsheba and brings in many wives into his uh, kingdom. And then there's Solomon, who half the time follows like David, but then half the time looks more like, looks more like Egypt. And By the end of his reign, he has a thousand wives or a thousand women that uh, turn his heart towards other gods, and the split of the kingdom begins. But in the middle of all of that, there's a covenant that God makes with David And with the people of God, even in this room, is that aside from all the human kingdoms, there will be a heaven kingdom. And apart from the actions and the following of the commandments of the humans, God will set up an eternal kingdom that will never be taken from this earth. And an eternal king that won't die, that won't be voted out of office, that won't be bribable or intimidatable, that won't be bullied. A king that will sit on the throne in perpetuity and and rule with justice justice. And righteousness for all of the nations. And His name is Jesus. And so this Holy Week, the week before Easter, is the marking of the beginning of Jesus entering into Jerusalem to take his throne, the throne of the cross. Jesus is going to enter in uh, on the first day of Holy Week on a donkey into Jerusalem and set his flint, set his face flint towards the destination that his father has called him to, to the cross of Calvary, to take his throne, to take his place, to sit on that throne. Because all of the other kings, all the other kings, they, they offer phony campaign slogans and phony offerings. If you uh, follow me and, and pledge your allegiance to me, I will, I'll, I'll, what does Scar say in Lion King? I'll make sure to give you a kingdom that you'll never grow hungry again. And none of them can deliver. None of them can sit in perpetuity with a, with a pure heart and an unbribable spirit, but Jesus did. And he comes and he establishes his kingdom, not on the things that, that we set up and the campaign banners and slogans and the taxes we raise and the policies that we put in place, but the broken spirit and the contrite heart can find that king on the path to Calvary and cry out to him, Hosanna, save us. And at that very moment, the poor in spirit will find the kingdom of heaven and actually find salvation in a kingdom that does not exist in this place by any other constitutional means or any other crown or any other throne, and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus is, at the beginning of this story, going to change his, his policy, whereas before, if you remember, when he would do miracles and they would kind of um, get, get excited and uh, there'd be a frenzy of the crowd around him wanting to go and tell the friends and the neighbors about the, the miracles, he would always say what? Well, shh, be quiet, be quiet. It's not my time. It's not my time. But when, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he rides the donkey into the gates of Jerusalem, what he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is now. It is my time. And I've come to go claim my throne in a different kind of a way. And so whereas there was a coexistence a coexistence of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, now there's a clash. And Jesus is gonna square up and say some mean, harsh things to some people that need to hear him. He's gonna turn over some tables. He's gonna point some fingers. And he's gonna collect probably the greatest crowd, you know, in the, in the Jewish calendar, usually it's like 50,000 people that were in Jerusalem at that time. During Passover, 200,000 people to all create this spectacle, is that there are, there are 193 flags that exist today in the world, but there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven. And I've come to bring the kingdom of heaven for all that would repent and receive it. And so he's here to confront the kingdom, the kingdom of, of man with the kingdom of heaven. So this is, what, uh, this is, how, this is how the showdown takes place. So Matthew 21 uh, says, As they're approaching Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, uh, the house of figs, uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So, this is just out of a James Bond movie. You guys are James Bond fans. I mean, he's got every little meticulous detail, and there's even a code word. He's like, you know, go to the bar and order this type of a drink, and then they'll slide the code. You know, like that's how this stuff takes place. He has everything set up, untie them. He's going to tell them where the donkey is, the donkey that's next to him, the guy that's going to be there, and what to say. The code word, the Lord needs of them. And this all took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Uh, uh, This is the prophet Zechariah. Um, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this guy. You can follow him on Instagram. His name is Banksy. And so Banksy is this kind of like political activist person. Um, We're not even, I think, sure exactly who he is or what his real name is or whatever, but he kind of goes around and he uses... um, uh, kind of graffiti and public places to create kind of political cartoons and send different messages here. And so there's a lady on the bus underneath the, you know, machine hand of, uh, of the system or something like that. And so there he is making a comment about um, humanity and uh, its, its systems, either just or unjust. Uh, this is another one that caught my attention. So again, these are not just paintings on the wall, but they're actually like uh, prophetic or, Im, you know, image-driven or picture-driven messages that are hard to avoid. And so this is in Disney World, as a matter of fact, in Florida, uh, 90 miles away, right, from Cuba where uh, Guantanamo Bay and uh, the, the, the uh, prisoner uh, there that, that's set up there in Cuba is. And so there he is. He put, uh, if you see the orange little jumpsuit there is a prisoner from Guantanamo Bay, and he's making comments about um, due process and, and how we handle prisoners of war and prisoners in general. Uh, in the United States of America. And so the park actually like, shut down for three straight days. And um, I bring all that up because uh, whatever your take is on the messages of Banksy's The Means and the way that he did it is, is a lot like the prophetic uh, the prophets of old. When you think about a guy like Ezekiel who actually made dirt pies that he had to eat and put poop inside of it in the book of Ezekiel, it was sending the message that the people of Israel are eating garbage, you know, like from the nations. Instead of worshiping God, they were worshiping uh, the idols. And so he would not just preach a message, but actually give an image and use, use his life on the side of the street or something like that, laying down and eating dung off the street to show something that God wants to say. You know, he had the prophet Hosea, and you guys know, Mary, a prostitute right? And so that's his picture of saying, Israel is like a prostitute, it's run after other gods. I'm going to send, you know, this guy who's a prophet. I'm not just going to have him preach about, you know, not running after other gods. I'm going to have this guy marry a prostitute and have his life serve as the message. Okay? Some of you guys think about, you know, prophecy is uh, tough and you'd be scared to be a prophet. Well, uh, think about Isaiah who had to be naked for three straight years, just walk around naked to illustrate some of the shame. And so a picture's worth a thousand words. I guess that's the moral of the story. And so Jesus is entering in on this donkey. And so you know, if Banksy is making a, a conversation there about the Guantanamo Bay uh, prison thing, and if 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 Isaiah is making this claim about the nakedness and the shame of Israel, what is Jesus doing? What's he doing? And so he's entering in on a donkey, and the interpretation from the previous 500 years prior, um, Zechariah prophecy is interpreting what the picture is supposed to be saying. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey. You know the only two times, the only two words that Jesus used to describe his heart is, um, it's, I think it's, I can't remember if it's Matthew 8, when he, when he, when he says, come to me, all you who are, are weary. He describes his heart in two, two words. He says, the superlatives of the Messiah's heart is not harsh and cruel, but it's gentle and, and lowly. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and carry my yoke, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And so what he, what he, what he clearly is saying is that out of all the 193 flags that exist in the world today, he's saying, really, there's only two kingdoms, and the way that you're going to be able to tell the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of man is that the kingdom of man is, is harsh and driven by war steeds, and the kingdom of heaven comes gentle and lowly and on an animal of peace. That's how David wrote in. That's how, that's how Solomon rode into his kingdom. That was always the prophetic image that the two different kingdoms are both considered kingdoms, but they operate, operate in different ways. And so if you've, you know, worked you know, in a job or, or done anything in the public realm here, you know, in modern-day America, um, uh, the idea of servant leadership is not contrary necessarily to the way that we, we do our schools, the way we do businesses. Uh, for example, uh, Home Depot during COVID, which was losing um, a lot of shares against its competitor Lowe's, and so, um, you know, sometimes uh, uh, necessity is a mother of invention, and so they sat around in the boardroom and they thought about you know, why is this the problem, and what's the culture we need to create, and those sorts of things. And they came up with this little upside-down triangle, and, and so maybe, you know, the place that you work has something similar to this. And so the, the guy, uh, the, the CEO person, had this idea, you know, he says, the most important person in the company is actually not the CEO, the most important person in the company is the customer, because the customer is the one that's telling you whether or not you're winning, because the customer is always right, right? So he's saying, the way that you should look at your business is this way, turn the triangle upside-down, and say, look, the customer uh, there is actually the CEO, Make the customer the CEO. Fire the CEO. Make the CEO, or make the customers the CEO. Make them the ones that make the decisions. And under that, make the frontline associates, the people that you f- f- see at the checkout counter and you know you pay. Those people are the second in command. And then third would be the field support, those regional director people. And then the corporate people, the people that live out wherever they live in California, uh, those people are not very important. Then the CEO should be the bottom. And this is upside down management, right? So can I propose to you that the world can can very easily and with Great profit and great return imitate the kingdom of God, but can't replicate it. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, those field line associates are not going to give away that lawnmower for free. The gospel is not going to sell you anything, right? It's going to give you something. So as much as we want to um, co-opt and take and, and imitate and use, I think it's a great idea to use this kind of a concept. At the end of the day, that CEO is not going to die for his corporate support. And that's the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of man can duplicate and replicate, right, or can, can imitate it, but it cannot replace it. The kingdom of man in its ways and in its governing bodies and its spiritual posture cannot imitate the kingdom of heaven, right? Because the kingdom of man can visit humility, but the kingdom of heaven lives there. Mark this, this note, right? When, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, he doesn't get off the donkey and immediately demand that he's now going to be the high priest and kick high fists off. stand. nor does he demand that he's the emperor of Rome, he takes the donkey and doesn't get off of it. He rides the donkey all the way to Calvary and then gets on the cross and dies to it. And oftentimes the kingdom of man will replicate it for long enough to seek its own promotion and seem, seem humble without actually being it. But for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven does not use humility as a pathway to exaltation. It sees humility as exaltation itself that it actually sees the changing of diapers for a baby as royal. And this is completely upside down for us because even in church, we'll tell people, you know, well, you gotta be a David too and go live in the field for seven years, and then you can become a megachurch pastor, right? So what's the hidden message is that humility is a vehicle to get to royalty, but kingdom of heaven says that humility is royalty. That you at the table with your spouse, praying for your husband, praying for your wife, caring for your kids, being the last, being the least, sitting down there leading without looking over your shoulder about who's going to reward you and elevate you somewhere else in that place, shows you don't have an understanding of what royalty actually is and therefore um, have no place in it. And so Jesus is, is painting a very loud message. that The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man, they operate in completely different ways. And to see a king riding in on a donkey as opposed to a war, war steed is a spectacle. But he's made no mistakes. He's, he's taken care of every detail. And he's, he's thought through every prophetic image, and he is making a loud and resounding message that any man or woman or child that wants to lose his life could find it in him, to not to visit the kingdom of heaven, but to live there, to die to the kingdom of man and find life for the very first time. And so in this little moment, uh, controversial, provoking, stirring moment, there's these two different crowds that begin to clamor. And so maybe you've heard the story before in verse six. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spreads their cloaks on the road, while other cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him. Those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And I've been a youth pastor before, so they usually get the youth pastor to preach on Palm Sunday, you know? So I preached this sermon, uh, this text a few times, and um, I've actually seen lots of different commentaries about who the crowd is, because that's what's really important. You know, the Scripture is opening us to us and realizing, like, we're not just onlookers onto this scene, we're participants. We are one of these people. We're either in the crowd, right? Uh, in, in, in the crowd, shouting out to Jesus, identifying him as Messiah and saying, therefore, save us, or we're the one jeering at him in front of the Romans saying, crucify him. And um, and I appreciate it in a lot of different ways, and I'm not exactly sure where I would even land today. But is it that the crowds changed their tone, like in, in other words, were the same people shouting, uh, "Hosanna, save us," the same exact people that would later shout, you know, shout out, "Crucify him," just because their hearts changed, or are they two and different and distinct people? I'm not really sure. But what we do know is that the spirit of God, if it occupied that moment. Uh, would not have been saying the, the former, would have been saying the latter. They would, the Spirit of God would have agreed with the people of God in this moment to say, I've seen a, a, a dozen kings before, thousands of kings before, but this is the only one and true living God. This is the king that has come to save Israel. And so here's my little hypothesis after preaching the sermon a few different times, is that, um, that probably the people of God that are in that moment agreeing with the Spirit of God to prophesy the word of God about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, Probably my opinion would be that the reason why they have faith churning up inside them to shout out that prophecy uh, is probably because they've lost faith in almost everything else. The people that Jesus identifies in the temple that cry out, Hosanna, save us, are children, little people, you know, the little people with the goldfish and the spit and all that kind of stuff. They don't have a lot of other faith or guile or or hurt or woundedness that they would cry out to another king. They just simply saw Jesus and called him who he was. And the other group of people apparently don't have enough money to find a a decent sacrifice to sacrifice on Passover, and so they're buying pigeons. This is probably the poor people. This is just my hypothesis that oftentimes the people that have the least faith in the kingdom of man are most likely to have faith in the kingdom of heaven. And so you might have a story like me. Uh, I told you my flirt to convert story. Kyra batted her pretty little eyes at me, and I followed her youth group, and that was the end of it, you know? (laughs) In the meantime, there's a church involved, and there's a youth pastor involved, and there's a guy who knew my name, and he came to the tennis match, and he followed up with me, and he cared, and that's what mattered most, uh, and uh, he had a really funny voice, he used to lift weights, and he called his wife, Rhonda. This, this is my wife, Rhonda. and he had a T-Bird, it was like a 1980s car that he like waxed too many times, but it was still really ugly, and he like opened the door, and it caught my attention, he went on, and he, he pastored a big church in Orlando, and uh, it, it grew. It was one of the fastest growing churches in America. It grew from whatever it was, a little small group. And he was 23 years old. He planned his church. And in five years, I think it was like 5,000 people or something like that. I got down from a sermon. It might have been a, public, uh, a Palm Sunday sermon one time as a youth pastor. And a guy pulled me aside and said, hey, I was talking about this guy, Isaac. And um, he said, um, hey, you might want to check on your youth pastor. I used to go to that church and um, kind of had some bad news. And so I googled them. I remember um, I was at Chin Chin over on Butler Road, right there. Um, I mean, no harm done, but it was—I wasn't I wasn't. Was it was probably possibly the moment, but also the ingredients of the noodles, and I was just not enjoying it. And um, uh, the the Google thing that I read is that uh, that Isaac had uh, been unfaithful to his wife, and been disqualified from ministry. And I just felt sick to my stomach, mainly from the noodles, but also from the heart sickness. And it felt like not only my faith in people, but my faith in Jesus was shaken because I had to work through like what really was the work of God and what was the work of man. That's really the harm done. The passage we see this, this morning is, is, is a passage of intense deliberation. You know, it's intention. Like every little donkey and every little cup of water and every little thing was all planned out, all so that this moment could come. It's like, it's not about impressing you know, the critics. It's not about, making a statement in his claim to get back at his enemies. It's about the children of God crying out since Psalm 8. It's about fulfilling prophecy. It's about things that God said coming true 500 years later because God said that it was gonna happen. And God has not wasted any moment of pain in any of these people's lives to get them to lose faith in anything they need to lose faith for to cry out. What if I told you that sometimes I've witnessed and testified to the fact that God will shake our faith in people so we'll finally have faith in him. And he's not wasted any of that pain and any of that heartache of the people that have let you down because people will let you down. And maybe the good news of the gospel will visit you even through some of the dismay of seeing churches and pastors and people that we love and follow that we might find the brokenness of man so we might turn and find the healing of Jesus. That sometimes he'll allow people to let you down, right, so that Jesus can actually lift you up so that on that Sunday, that next Easter, Whereas before, you might have your heart divided to believing in the salvation of another king or another man or another person with a face and a name and a brand and a website. You have no other faith in that moment, on that Easter when he's broken down all those other thrones that you might cry out to Jesus and finally find salvation. What if he causes us to lose faith in people that we might have faith in him? And so, he enters into the temple. We really see his destination when he gets on the donkey. He's not just going for a ride. He's going somewhere on purpose. He has his head set towards a very distinct place The place is the temple of God. It's the place that Solomon built. You know, it was um, it was uh, a compromise that God I suppose to say you know I didn't tell you to build the temple but I'll allow you to do it. You could put all the gold you want on it. You could put all the marble and make it attractive and put it in the middle of Zion. You know, but if you follow the command, the spirit of God will dwell there. And that's what the promise has been, whether it's in a tent, a tabernacle, or a temple. So he's going to this place as this great reunion. Verse twelve: Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out. Uh, all that were buying and selling there and overturned the temples or the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I mean, this was supposed to be a great family reunion, man. It was supposed to be the temple of God, the very place where heaven and earth dwelled, the tabernacling of heaven and earth, the spirit of God, where the people of God could gather around the prophecy of the one who actually just entered in the room. They were sacrificing and making blood sacrifices that would point to the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And here's the spirit of God, the people of God and and the son of God are in the room and we're making money. We're making money, we're making profits. Isn't it written, he says to them, my house will be called the house of prayer and you're making this thing a den of robbers? But then the real, you know, even with man's ugliness and it's parading and charades and all all that stuff, the spirit of God and the kingdom of heaven continue to do what it does in the middle of all that. And so in verse 14, he, he has his own temple because he's the temple, and wherever he is, the Spirit of God dwells, and the people of God will be drawn to him. And so who cares about the temple? So verse 14, the blind and the lame come to him at the temple, and they're healed. There it is. The kingdom of man comes to rob, and the kingdom of God comes to heal. For anybody would call out to him on the street, Son of David, don't pass me by. So the blind and the lame, they come to him at the temple, they're healed. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left and went out of the city of Bethany where he spent the night. And so at the heart of every kingdom in Israel or in Judah, the southern tribe was a king. And in front of every one of those kings, although they promised peace and bread and safety and freedom, they only delivered slavery. Every single one of them down to the T. But in the middle of all that, while the kings were falling, the promise of God still continued to stand and it delivered the king that the people never wanted. So here's the reality. Outside of 193 flags, there's only really two kingdoms. It's not just the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin. The reason why injustice lives in any nation, you know why injustice lives in any nation? Why injustice lives in any church? is because of idols in the heart. You want to know why college coaches can run around on campuses and not be challenged for their sexual promiscuity and their abuse of young people. You know why? Because we love to win. And if we love to win more than we love people justice, don't be surprised when you get injustice. Don't be surprised when the American church wants to run like a machine and see buildings filled and people shouting and people wearing the T-shirts. And when the pastor becomes a celebrity when they fall, it's because when you love momentum or you love the spirit of God, don't be surprised when you get injustice. So at the end of the day, every king falls, not because kings are bad, because there's idols in their heart. And Jesus has come to restore the temple to do its intentional purpose, which is not to keep heaven from earth, but to join it. And that heaven would come to earth rather than people have to pay their way up to it. This is what the gospel says. And so this is a hard word, but it's a word that I think we need to, we need to carry and we need to hear. Because it sounds good in a t-shirt and here's what you're gonna hear. And I'm not here to bust on syntax, you know? It's not, it's not about necessarily the wording. But the truth of the matter is, Anytime you have or wear a T-shirt or you hear me preach it, sometimes I'll probably say it the wrong way, let's go build the kingdom of God, you just heard false prophecy. Because the kingdom of heaven is not to be built. The kingdom of heaven is established with or without you. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is to be believed and repented towards, but not built. So Jesus gives the constitution he, at the two sides of his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry on the mountain of Galilee and over here at the mountain of Olives, and he, and he has these, this seven-point sermon. And, and he explains, really, what the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man is all about. And so I'll just show you the little crib notes of it all. But basically, this is what the kingdom of man does. The kingdom of man is rich in spirit. And it believes it knows how to get to heaven. So it opens up an Instagram account and tells people what they ought to do to get the good life. What kind of jeans to wear, what kind of car to drive, what kind of business to get into. And they stand at the door and they block people getting into heaven because of how flashy their smile is. And not only did they not allow people to get in, they don't enter in either. That's what the kingdom of man does. The kingdom of man does not handle its hurt and pain and sit before God broken. It fixes itself from the inside out and then starts a campaign movement to try and prevent whatever pain that they ever suffered to never happen again. They travel to all distant points of the globe making converts of themselves, making converts of hell rather than the converts of heaven. And they try to eliminate the tragedies that they had, whether it be sexual abuse or whether it be, you know, tyranny or whether it be you know, malpractice in church and they go out and preach something that's not the gospel rather than sit in the pain and the lamentation to mourn in front of God, experience the full weight of it, the pain and therefore be comforted. They missed their comfort and they tried to be proselytes instead. That's what the kingdom of man will do. The kingdom of man will value what is shiny and gold and has money on it and it will point to it as the false idol and sell you your healing over it. Be like me And you can get this. If you had enough faith, you'd be like me and you'd drive the Learjet just like me. That's what the kingdom of man does. This ain't new. The kingdom of man loves to teach. It loves to tell other people what they ought to be doing. Have you opened up Instagram lately? This is what we do. We wanna tell other people what they ought to be doing. Why? Because we don't wanna deal with what we're doing because we're not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And we want other people to do what we're not willing to do. And so we point the finger because we don't wanna look in the mirror. And so we teach and we clean the outside. The kingdom of man will be all fussing in the minivan with your kids and your wife and all that stuff. And you get up and, how you doing? Praise the Lord, joy to the Lord, right? Cleaning the outside of the cup, but hurting and eating mercy on the inside, giving sacrifice instead of mercy. The kingdom of man is divided in many ways and it's gotta spin a lot of political angles because there's a lot of you know, people that they need to impress and keep up with and tell the funny people these things and tell the Republican people these things, Democratic people these things. And so we're divided rather than being Fearing God and fearing no one else, being pure in heart, simple in heart, and fearful of no one. The kingdom of man only sheds blood. And we'll set up statues and monuments of people that, you know, we, we say we would have followed Abraham Lincoln back then, but maybe we wouldn't. Half the country apparently didn't. And so we set up these, these, these figures in the past and these statues, and we claim justice off of the 2020 rearview mirror, And maybe neglect the justice that's right in front of us to say the unpopular thing that the prophets did. And so therefore, the persecuted people, the prophets will be blessed, right? But the proselytes and the Pharisees will always become the vipers that kill them. And they will be the snake that gets stepped on by the heel of Jesus. And so he lays those two things out, the seven blessings and the seven woes. And they mirror completely the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says that right in the middle of it. And the invitation for us for Easter is Mark 1. The kingdom of God has not asked you to come to it. Rather, it has come to you. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God has come near to you. And so all that have ears, all that are like children, all of those that have been let down and distraught and found the flaws and idiosyncrasies and the injustice of man, don't be, despised and don't, don't be surprised and don't be dismayed that every king that has been risen up is another king that falls other than the only king, King Jesus. And maybe these years of pain and heartache have come to us that we might be able to do what he calls us to do today, which is to repent and believe in the good news. You see, the thing about believing in Jesus is it's not just just the practice of believing Jesus as the Son of God, it's also the practice of repenting of every other Son of God that we believe can save us. There's a Bill Bright... uh, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, I don't know if it made it, seven mountains picture that I wanted to put up there. The mountain of religion, the mountain of family, the mountain of government, the mountain of education, the mountain of celebrity, all of these are mountains. These are all these false Zions that we think we can get to the top of, that we need to climb to the top of. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is not the top of mountains, it's at the bottom of them. He has come near to you not as the mountain of law of Sinai, but the mountain of grace of Zion, that all that would draw near would find their healing, that all that would fall down out of their robbery and thievery would find healing at the temple of God where the presence of God would meet the people of God with the Son of God, and the kingdom of God would come near, and we would repent and to believe the good news. And so if we could just put up that that slide of the seven woes to close out, I wonder if there's anyone here that has ears to hear and eyes to see this Easter. Maybe not last one, but you're a little bit more tired and a little bit more worn out and a little bit less stirred up by the new Instagram campaign that's going on, the new hashtag, the new cool thing, the new celebrity, the new what if this is a king person and what if you're ready to cry out to be poor in spirit? So just accept that he's come near you today. What if you were bold enough and brave enough to actually find freedom, to call sin, sin, To call abuse, abuse. To call neglect, neglect. To not put on the happy smile and the happy face, but to mourn for the first time. And therefore, receive comfort. We won't find it in some other new travel destination or Airbnb. We'll find it at the feet of Jesus. And anyone that would mourn would not only save themselves heartache, but save the, the people that they're talking to, the heartache as well. The people that we would travel to. I wonder if there's anyone here that's meek enough to inherit the earth to know that Every building rises and falls and all the real estate of Greenville and beyond. The shiny things of the world, they can't maintain the earth. Jesus puts his feet on the earth and he declares a Sabbath rest over this place because his creation is done, his work is finished, and all that are meek in front of him can receive the earth to reign as real kings and queens. The hunger and thirst for righteousness, to see the the plank as more important than the speck, to not escape Escape repentance by judging others, by casting the blame and projecting it on somebody else and what I'm the victim of rather than just coming to the mirror and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and therefore being filled. I wonder if there's anyone here that would like to see the inside of their cup made clean to actually find mercy as opposed to hypocrisy. I wonder if there's anyone here that's tired of being a divided heart and wants to be an integral person, like somebody that walks the same way in private as in public. That's the spirit of Jesus. That's what he's come to do. If there's anyone here that actually wants to be a peacemaker and not a peacekeeper and stand for the word of prophecy that will call everyone else a liar, and Jesus the one that tells the truth. I wonder if there's anyone here that's persecuted to be a child of God. And so the kingdom of heaven, as much as we want to control it and consolidate it and market it and prove it, can't be built. We want to get our hands on it. But has a Christian school ever created Christians? The faith of a principal of a Christian school might create Christians, but Christian schools don't create Christians. Has any church actually made everyone a Christian in their church? We can pray well and serve well, but at the end of the day, it's just obeying his voice. We can put a bumper sticker on it and say we're building the kingdom of God, but we're not building anything but man other than believing and trusting in the kingdom of God has come near. Even in our own households, can we really raise our kids? I mean, we can feed them, we can teach them, we can tell them the difference from right and wrong, but you guys know Flesh can give birth to flesh, but only spirit can give birth to spirit. Because the kingdom of heaven cannot be built. It has been established by King Jesus, and therefore, it's not an if, it's an I will. It's what he's done. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.